So final instructions from an old pastor. It's probably not a surprise to you that this old pastor I'm referring to is uh, not me. Uh, Unless you're maybe 10 or 15 years old, you might think someone 42 is old. Uh, These uh, personal and uh, practical instructions that we're going to hear this morning come from the Apostle Paul. And they come in the last year's of his life, in his later years. And these are words that are not only coming from a mere man, these are the very words of God. This is the word of God, which is a great reminder for us that as we hear the preached word each week, whether Sunday morning, Sunday evening, uh, the ultimate authority, the ultimate weight of the preached word is not based on the preacher, his age, his personality, his method. God uses those things, but rather it's founded upon the Word of God. And yet the Lord uses human instruments. Uh, He uses you. He uses me. Here we're going to see how he used the Apostle Paul as an instrument and Paul's very real circumstances to communicate to us truth. And so at the end of 2 Timothy, what we have is truth in the form of instructions personal instructions, and I think these instructions can help serve us in this particular season of our lives and our faith and our ministry. So it's 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you would turn there, the closing words and instructions from Paul to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, beginning at verse 9. Listen now to God's word. Paul writes, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Well, as Paul uh, sits in prison in Rome, likely awaiting his execution under the evil Roman emperor Nero, uh, the final words that we have here recorded really give us some insight into Uh, the focus and the heart of the Apostle Paul, his primary aim, even in this final season of his ministry. 
And, and while these words are the very word of God, they come in the form of a personal letter. A letter from an older pastor, Paul, in chains, in prison, to a younger pastor, Timothy, serving the church in Ephesus. And it's this personal relationship, it's this personal letter that not only reveals to us Paul's priorities and his focus, but can serve for us what our priorities, what our aims ought to be as we press on in ministry together in this next season, in this new year. Well, we see something similar to this in the life and the ministry of St. Augustine, the bishop, the pastor uh, who served in the 4th and lived in the 4th and 5th century A.D. He lived to the age of 75. In his earlier years, Augustine was a man who had actually traveled quite a lot, quite extensively, in part because of his appointment to be bishop in Hippo, North Africa. But as time went on in his later years, he became more stationary and fixed, in part because of his age, but also because of his work and his calling. And it was in that time, those later years, that a friend of his named Nebridius wrote to Augustine a letter. This is someone who earlier had really shared a friendship. They had traveled together. They kind of shared an intellectual uh, brotherhood. They had spent time in Carthage, later in Milan. Nebridius is writing to encourage Augustine to take a break, to escape from Hippo, to join him on a kind of uh, traveling journey, kind of excursion, we might even say a vacation of sorts, to visit some of the familiar sites and cities. That was the reason Nebridius, in part, was writing Augustine. Here's Augustine's response. My health is too poor, and I am not able to do what I wish. Therefore, to spend one's whole life planning quiet and easy journeys, such as you cannot have, is not the proper conduct of a man who takes the one last journey called death, upon which alone you understand one's thoughts should be rightly expended. As Augustine lived in the final season of his life and ministry, uh, there were simply places he could not go. There were simply things he could not do. So what did he do? He fixed his mind, he fixed his heart on that one final destination, that one final journey. And these words in 2 Timothy at the end here is the fruit of a man who is nearing the end, yet he is keeping first things first. The main thing, the main thing. Here is Paul, someone as well who was very well-traveled, writing, serving, moving, a church planter, missionary. He's pouring himself out. Now he finds himself literally bound. He's confined in prison. His circumstances look bleak, and his journey appears to be in doubt. So, as Paul writes to his younger protege, Timothy, what's Paul doing in the midst of what, in many ways, appears to be a disruption in his ministry, at least outwardly? What's he doing as he comes near to the end? And that question comes to us. What are we, as the people of God, doing perhaps in a season that feels disrupted? What are we doing as we press forward to our end? 
I think Paul's words are for young people and they're for older people. For the young, I'll count myself among them, his words serve as a kind of paradigm, an example. What does a, Christ, what does a fruitful Christian life look like? What does it aim for? For the old or older. These words serve as a pattern. How to finish well. So what's Paul focused on? First of all, we see a man, a mature believer, in need of Christian fellowship. Continuing to be in need of it. Notice what Paul says to Timothy in these final instructions. Verse 9. The first verse that we read. Do your best to come to me soon. Come quickly. That's at the beginning of the instructions. He says it again at the end in verse 21. Do your best to come before winter. His desire and need for Christian fellowship kind of serves as the bookends to these final instructions. And if that's not enough, he says it essentially again right in the middle in verse 13. When you do come, there's an urgency in Paul's words. Come soon, come quickly, come before winter. Why is Paul expressing such a deep desire to have fellowship, community, here particularly with Timothy as he writes to him? This, this one he called his beloved child in chapter 1, verse 2 of this letter. Well, a few things could be identified. For one, winter was coming. It would have meant more difficult uh, travel for Timothy. It also meant colder months were coming. Uh, we notice Paul in need of the request for a cloak, warmer garments. But I think there's more happening. The ranks, the numbers of servant and ministry workers were depleting, it seems, or at least dispersed. In verse 10, Crescens has gone to Galatia, he says. Titus to Dalmatia. In verse 12, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. So we have Paul hard at work serving, but as he nears the end of his faithful ministry, it's led to a place in some ways of loneliness, feeling alone. And that may be true. Those of you who have walked with the Lord for a long time, the longer you walk with him, the tighter that circle gets as time goes on of those with whom you still share that longer history. But this aloneness in some ways seems to me to simply be a feeling. I love the way Paul puts this. He says in verse 11, Luke alone is with me. But then at the end he says, Eubulus uh, sends greetings to you, as do Pudens, also Linus, and Claudia, and all the brothers. Well, what is it, Paul? Is it just Luke with you, or... Or do you have a whole crowd? Well, maybe Luke alone was with him and he had visitors. But his feeling of loneliness is a real thing. I think there's more behind what Paul expresses here in his need for gospel fellowship. He knew his end was coming. He wanted the comfort of a dear friend. If you just turn back a few verses in verse 6 of this chapter, 
There, Paul says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. When I think about the Apostle Paul, I think of words like resolute, unshaken, a rock. He is determined. And that's very true, very characteristic of Paul, for sure, as we see throughout his ministry. But now as he comes to the end, he's bound, he's feeling alone. He is alone in many ways. Maybe we see a little different side of Paul. Less Paul the apostle and more Paul the mere man. He's isolated, limited, vulnerable. He's weakened. But I think most of all, Paul wanted fellowship because he wanted to be filled with joy. He wanted to be filled with joy. We might think, Paul? Paul lacking joy? Isn't Paul the apostle of joy, we might say? Uh, That's what we read through his letter to the church in Philippi, that epistle of joy that we've been hearing and learning about on Sunday evenings in our time of worship. Here's what we hear in uh, Philippians. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Philippians 1.18. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Philippians 4.4. 4. I rejoiced in the Lord, even in my chains. Philippians 4.10. Paul does not seem like one who would be lacking in joy. But notice how Paul began his letter to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 3. Here's how he began. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. True joy comes in part as a result of Christian fellowship. Paul had tasted that. He longed for it. He knew he needed it. Even in his last years, in his older age, fellowship was needed. Because God's people are not meant to go it alone. I think there's real insight for for us as the people of God. Uh, We gather not only because we're committed to the same book, committed to the same God, committed to the same gospel, but we are called to come together because of a commitment to each other. And that's significant. I think it's fair to say that for Paul and Timothy and perhaps some of these other brothers that are mentioned, part of what gave life to their mission and life to their vertical relationship with God was their communion and fellowship together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together says, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It's rather a reality created by God in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our fellowship is in Christ alone, the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. Fellowship's not merely an idea. It is a reality that God calls his people to participate in. We all need uh, Pauls in our lives. We need Timothys. We need Marks. We need Lukes. 
in our lives. We see Paul committed to Christian fellowship. Secondly, we see Paul engaged in gospel ministry, pressing forward in his commitment in this way. We see this in verses 10 and 12 at least. There he wrote, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. He's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. He says, get Mark, bring him with you. He's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. It's really astonishing. We, we don't just have here a list of names. We have really circumstances that are communicating very clearly Paul's continued commitment in gospel work. The, the, the letter here doesn't end in verse 8. In those verses, 6, 7, 8, we have Paul expressing the fighting of the good fight, finishing the race, awaiting the crown of righteousness. The Lord could have ended it in verse 8, but it doesn't end there. It goes on with these instructions. Directions to Timothy. Because Paul's about continuing to serve, continuing to advance, continuing to work. While Demas, according to the language said about him, seems to have defected from the ministry altogether, very likely, all the rest appear to be sent by Paul in service of the gospel. Crescens to Galatia, south of the Black Sea. Titus to Dalmatia, eastern part of the Adriatic Sea, present-day Croatia. Trophimus, in verse 20, he says, I left at Miletus, the Aegean Sea. Uh, Paul's, Paul's not only painting a picture in which it appears all of these people are being sent out throughout the Mediterranean world, establishing a, a context, a presence for Christ, but even in the midst of being physically bound, Paul is actively engaged. And he's very intentional. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus Timothy, he's relocating to where he is, even while in chains. Paul's kind of like a, an army general. He's in the trenches with the troops. He's sending them out. He's still directing, still working. And even what we read of Mark in verse 11 is very significant, it seems to me. He says, get Mark, bring him with you. He's very useful to me for ministry. Now, many of us know the backstory to this. We recall that apparent division that had occurred between Paul and Mark back in Acts chapter 13. As they set out on that first missionary journey, that first circuit journey, we're told in Acts 13 that Mark, midway in the journey, departed. He returned to Jerusalem. He didn't finish that full first missionary journey. So that in Acts chapter 15, at the beginning of the second missionary journey, where they would retrace their steps and go even further, Barnabas expresses a desire to take with them Mark. But Paul says, in essence, he didn't finish the first course. Why should he begin a second? To the point that they part ways. In fact, in the scripture, it says there was a sharp disagreement. Part, Barnabas partners with Mark. They head to Cyprus. Paul uh, partners with 
Silas. Well, that's what had happened in Acts 13 and 15. Well, between the time of that disagreement and here, what we hear from Paul, his words here, there not only appears to have been reconciliation of sorts, but a track record from Mark that proved his effectiveness. I think it's very significant. It's clear that for Paul, and hopefully for all of us, there was something far more superior of greater worth than past disagreements, past issues, past shortcomings. And that was advancing the ministry of the gospel. Get Mark, he's useful for the ministry. That had greater worth than past shortcomings in his mind. We see Paul, he's still serving He's even wanting the books and the parchments. We've got a picture of a person fully engaged in ministry, writing, reading, working. A commitment to Christian fellowship, engaged in gospel ministry. Finally, we see Paul, he is confident of what is to come, even in the midst of his enduring of suffering. Suffering marked Paul's ministry from the beginning through the middle to the end. We should expect it ourselves. Part of that suffering comes in the form of opposition from individuals. Notice in verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. And he says to Timothy, beware of him yourself. He opposed our message. Look out for people. So you've got opposition from within for Paul. Hard circumstances on the outside, externally. Alone in prison, facing the winter months ahead. On top of all that, Paul says, no one stood by me in my first defense. Everyone deserted me. Paul was facing real troubles. A number of years ago, while attending a conference on Reformed and Pastoral uh, Theology, uh, among those present were uh, D.A. Carson, John Piper, Al Mohler, and there were some others. And uh, the host had asked this question, are there any significant problems, or what are the significant problems facing the church today? And, and the youngest pastor on the panel was pretty quick, I remember, to grab the mic. And uh, he essentially said, there are no problems in the church of Christ today. Jesus is king, he's reigning, he's ruling over all things. Maybe that's how a younger person tends to see things. Uh, then I think it was D.A. Carson. He was handed the mic and he said, well, there are problems facing the church today. And he listed about 12 to 15 things, as I recall. Are there problems facing the church? Paul clearly identifies issues from within and from without facing the church. But in the midst of the various troubles, there's something that he is sure about. He says, no one came to stand by me, but the Lord stood by me. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. He knew the imminent presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. The strength that Christ provides. That word, strengthened me, or the word strength, he uses it a few times in this letter. 
And uh, we hear it in chapter 1, verse 7, pretty well-known verse. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity or fear, but a spirit of power, a spirit of, a spirit of strength, self-control, love. That word, strength, not only here in 2 Timothy, but throughout the pastoral letters, usually refers not to strength in overcoming something, but strength to endure through something. Very important. And why was Christ giving strength to Paul in order to endure? He says, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Isn't that why, in great part, God is causing us to endure as his people in any season, in this season? That through us, the message of the gospel might be proclaimed. Isn't that the most important message for people to hear, for our neighbors to hear, for the civil magistrate to hear, for our fellow citizens to hear? The message of the gospel. So Paul says, for this reason I was rescued from the lion's mouth, various dangers, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's confident. Not that he's going to be rescued from each and every hard circumstance, but he says, but from every evil deed. John Calvin says, what, sh what we should chiefly desire is not the safety of our body, but that we should rise superior over every evil trial, every, over every trial, that we may be ready to die a hundred times over. No wonder Paul says, to him be the glory forever and ever. Our hope, our glorious future is far greater than merely getting on the other side of, you name it, whatever circumstance it might be, any trying time. Our hope is to be forever in his heavenly kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you for the gospel of our salvation. How we praise you, Lord, that even in the midst of times in our lives and faith and ministry, we might be shaken, Lord, you show forth where our heart is to be fixed. Lord, may you give us a longing indeed for fellowship, to draw near to one another, uh, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts that are engaged in the work of the ministry, using the gifts that you have given to your people, each one of us. And Lord, may we be filled with confidence, assurance that you will usher us into your heavenly kingdom, that kingdom that has already come. Lord, give us a countenance of joy as a result of that confidence in you. And Lord, how we thank you that you stand by your people and you give us strength. We pray this with thanksgiving, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.